Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. All right, Craig Johnson, tell us what's going on in the world of Nike, and then we'll get to other stores in a second. Pam. Um, uh, so anyway, Nike is having a, a little bit of a rebound, and not that they've been in bad shape, but Nike remains, you know, one of the uh, two or three strongest, most recognized brands in the world. Very, very powerful. And so they had a, um, you know, they had a, a perfectly solid quarter, and uh, uh, both profits and top line up. I think uh, top line was up about eight percent or so. So they're they're doing okay. Um, now in the meantime, uh, Under Armour. You know, we don't do stock prices, but you know the stock has had a pullback for this year. But it's not that they're having any you know great giant troubles. You know, their sales were up over twenty percent, profits up I think fifteen sixteen percent at their last quarter. They reported maybe a uh, month month and a half ago, and then the uh, the folks have really come on quite strong as Adidas, and uh, and that brand has been. I say Adidas, by the way, the carry on. Some people do. <laughs> Anyway, they 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 uh, ADS. Let's call it that because it's called by the symbol. So they they've been doing fine, and, and in fact, they've had a nice rebound in the in the marketplace. Customers like them, and they've uh, they've moved their R and D uh, effort uh, locally in the U S. from Germany to to be more current with uh, a kind of U S. taste and interests and preferences. And of course, for those who live in the New York area, they've opened this huge, really magnificent flagship on uh, Fifth Avenue, right about about a Forty Sixth Street. It's really spectacular. Quite quite something. You know. Craig, you, you wrote in your uh, in your outlook that so far the retail uh, scene seems to be the best in many years. This has been the best season for shopping uh, in a long time, um, and yet we're still seeing stories about uh, stores like J J Crew, which just can't seem to get out of its death spiral. You know, what do you expect as far as the bankruptcies go, and is uh, this year's positive uh, development enough to stave off? bankruptcy for some of these firms? Well, um, what we're seeing overall is, is, is kind of a, two giant migrations in retail. One is the migration from a channel point of view, from, uh, from store-based retail to online. And online, we're predicting, is going to be about 18% of total sales uh, over the holiday season. And, and that's really quite something, is growing at about 14% plus a year over year. Um, and the second migration is is, in, is internally within 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 stores. There's a, there has been a migration away from apparel stores, uh, including J Crew, but not only J Crew, um, uh, to uh, to non apparel uses of spending, and uh, and that's just that's a long term trend. It's been exacerbated in recent years, and um, and that means there's going to be a, a raft of both winners and losers in uh, apparel land, and that's just it's the world we live in. Craig, let's. Talk about Bed Bath and Beyond. They are going to report their results after the close of trading today. How's their business faring? Well, it, it's kind of interesting. Now, there is a tale of two cities in, in, in the uh, third quarter being much different than in the fourth quarter we've seen uh, quarters to date. Um, and, you know, their quarter wrapped uh, right after the Black Friday uh, uh, weekend, I think on the 28th of November. And the third quarter will be not that great. They, they were very soft uh, for, for much of the fall. Um, and then, but things did pick up uh, across retail. Things picked up after the election, about by mid, about November, mid-November, and so they were able to capture because they have that 
you know, a delayed uh, a quarter, the third quarter ended November 28th. Um, uh, so they're able to capture some of the rebound then. And then month to date, I mean, you know, this is they're still very early into their, into their Q4. Um, they have been doing uh, uh, really quite well, along with the, almost the entirety of the home sector, whether it's home improvement, uh, guys like uh, uh, Depot and Lowe's, or whether home furnishings, where we've seen a lot of strength across the board. Uh, is restoration hardware an asterisk? I would call that a little bit of an exception that may prove the rule. They've, they've had some challenges. Um, uh, you know, we think they're getting their, their ducks uh, in a row together, but they, they've been a little bit challenged for, for many months now with some supply chain uh, issues. You know, one thing I'm struck by is that in the corporate credit world, uh, we're definitely, or a lot of people think we're getting to a later stage where uh, it's a lot of these companies are starting to build on leverage and they've already overextended. Looking into consumer credit, I'm trying to figure out, as you talk about the different sectors uh, and, and the and the better-than-expected shopping uh, season, where what does this indicate about where we are in the, the consumer credit cycle? Well, there we're seeing a situation where personal savings rates are still quite high, um, about five and a half uh, plus percent. We think that's starting to come down. Consumer credits, household balance sheets are much much are the healthiest they've been in years, um, and so with incomes gradually rising uh, over the last year or so, things are looking better. Now, the implications, though, for distressed uh, uh, debt um, uh, uh, retailers, um, that's a little bit of a different animal because there we're seeing some people that are having strong performance, such as uh, like. Toys R Us, and then we have other folks, whether it's uh, 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 Crew, you mentioned, whether it's Claire's, um, and some of the other players out there that, that have had, uh, let's just say, a few more challenges. Craig, the, just can we go back to uh, Adidas or Adidas and their success? Because they've now got the number two position. They've surpassed Under Armour, I believe. Is this rebound from where they were. Is this for real? Because they noticed the Stan Smith, the Heritage Brands, uh, partnerships with Kanye West. Is that going to mean that Adidas is going to just continue to go to another strength? Well, they have, you know, we, we think they really have stepped on the gas. Uh, and as you might know, they have a, a new CEO in there um, over the past uh, year. And uh, we've already seen an improvement there. Now, most of their strength has been, you know, again, on the footwear side of things. Under Armour Apparel, we think, we, we believe is still very, very strong, uh, the performance wear. Um, but uh, 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 ADS has been has been really coming on quite strong, and we think a lot of it reflects you know the new management that's on board, and the fact that they're becoming much more in tune with the U.S. market. Originally, some market research they've done, and now, as I mentioned, that they've uh, they've cited the, an R&D uh, uh, center right here in the U.S. versus trying to monitor the U.S. market from back in Germany. Thank you so much for joining us. Craig Johnson, president of Customer Growth Partners, coming to us from New Canaan, Connecticut. Just want to mention, Adidas shares up 55% so far this year. Nike shares down 17%. This is Bloomberg.
The shares of FedEx are down about 2.5% after profit at the air freight carrier took a hit from rising investment in its ground delivery business. And here to tell us more is Satish Jindal. He is the president of SJ Consulting Group. He joins us from Sewickley, Pennsylvania. Satish, always a pleasure. Tell us about FedEx and the challenges that the company faces, not necessarily just from UPS, but from the likes of Amazon as well as Uber. Well, this is a very interesting time for watching this company and the industry. And as you commented, uh, people think there's a lot of investment. The growth of parcel business is of a kind that, in my being in it for 20-plus years, I have not seen. And the peak is becoming higher and higher and more difficult because when you have package volume increasing in the B2B space, you don't add extra stops. But when you do it for consumers, you're going to new addresses, and that affects performance and productivity and service of a kind that people can't understand who are used to looking at annual statements and 10Ks. For FedEx to have incorporated and built 105 facilities Uh, and I've been involved with them, it is a remarkable addition. And if they don't do it, then they continue to risk losing the business of these big online retailers that they are handling. And people don't realize they think Amazon doesn't use uh, UPS and FedEx. They still move millions of packages for Amazon and other online retailers. And if they are going to stay as a good option for them, for these online retailers, they have to be able to handle it throughout the year, but more importantly, during a peak that is also not becoming bigger, but also getting spread out over several weeks. You know, Satish, I wanted to go back. You made an interesting point. You know, People think that Amazon and other online retailers uh, have their own channels for uh, distributing packages other than FedEx or UPS, but they are really reliant on uh, these companies. What about drones? I mean, we've heard plenty about delivery drones and sort of Amazon trying to create their own uh, horde of these flying, self, self-flying self vehicles. Is this at all a threat? You know, not for at least a few years, for various reasons. Uh, I do believe that in the next five years or maybe a little longer, we will ourselves have seen them with our eyes, packages being dropped off at people or places that we know of. However, there are a few limitations. One is the regulatory. That moves at a very slow pace and can't keep up with the pace at which technology is moving. But the other thing is that drones are first going to be only used in rural areas where they don't have to deal with all the wires and everything else that comes in the way of coming down to the lower level to drop a package in someone's front yard. The other thing is that they are still limited in handling certain items that have to be small, that have to be lightweight, and all that is going to take time to evolve. And then some things require signature. You can't get a signature from a drone. Not yet. I I think that's the quote of the day. You can't get a signature from a drone. I love it. Well, I was just going to give you some uh, detail just to put this into perspective, because FedEx, as you just described, is massive. 650 aircraft, 150,000 vehicles, moves 12 million packages a day. UPS moves even more, more than 18 million packages a day. Can you explain this saying in the world of supply chain, 
that density equals profitability? Well, you know, that is true. There is an element of density. But when you got in the 12 million you set for FedEx and about 17 for UPS, that is in the normal day. During Correct. February, March, April, during this month of December, FedEx is handling 17 million and UPS is handling 30 million. Okay. And to put it in perspective, that is in between 1 billion origin destination points. And for people who are listening, when they fly, they don't realize the airlines perform at 89% on time when they only have to fly between 400 airports that comes to only 18,000 lanes. So that is the complexity you're talking about. And they have a network that is unique, and which is why you find that other people can't create a network like that, and they can't compete with them, which is why UPS, FedEx, and Post Office, between three of them, deliver 97% of all the packages for all the shippers. And it seems like there's a pretty big barrier to entry for the Amazons of the world to create their own fleet. A huge. And I don't think Amazon, people talk about it. Amazon has no interest in being a transportation company because of the market that you cater to starts to think of them as a transportation company. Their P-E ratio is going to plummet. And instead of it trading at $700, it's going to trade at $100. Right. Satish Jindal, president of SJ Consulting Group from Sewickley, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for being with us. A story caught my eye, Pim Fox, that uh, highlights the difficulties the U.S. government is facing as it tries to tackle the massive amount of student loans outstanding, including some that perhaps were extended under fraudulent assumptions. I want to bring in Shaheen Nasirapur, uh, Bloomberg News reporter that covers U.S. court cases and crime. He is here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so can you talk to us a little bit about what the core issue is here for the U.S. government? They have said they would forgive some student loans that were uh, underwritten under false pretenses, right? Uh but then they're going out and they're actively pursuing uh, the debt collections from those students at this point. What's going on here? Uh, well, thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's a hard it's a hard question to ask. You know, the thing that I keep coming back to is this, you know, apparent conflict of interest within the U.S. Department of Education, where they are both, you know, the lender. Um, as well as a servicer. And so their job on one hand is to maximize collections and minimize the cost of the federal student loan program to taxpayers. Uh, but on the other hand, they're running the largest student debt forgiveness scheme uh, in U.S. history. And so that that apparent conflict uh, manifests itself in ways, in, you know, in one way in which where the federal government has decided that by and large, tens of thousands of you know, former students who attended schools owned by Corinthian Colleges, Inc., were defrauded uh, with false job placement rates. And they were duped into taking out these loans, and therefore these loans should be canceled. Uh, but on the other hand, the department and the education department is not uh, proactively canceling this debt. It's not proactively reaching out to these borrowers. And you could argue that if they were a private sector creditor, that their collection tactics would amount to a violation of laws banning unfair and deceptive acts and practices because they are collecting on debt that they have reason to believe need not be repaid. Um, 
And so far, they're they're not really saying much about it. If you are an eligible uh, borrower, what is the process by which you would have your fraudulent or allegedly fraudulent loan forgiven? What's the process? It's actually really simple. There is a form that the education department has created where all you need to do is fill out, you know, some biographical information, name, address, telephone number, etc. Um, you say, you know, you list the campus that you attended and the program you were enrolled in and the dates of your attendance. Um, and you simply check a box where you attest to the fact under penalty of perjury that you relied on these job placement rates when you enrolled. You sign your name at the bottom of the form, you return it, and your loans should be forgiven. That is what the education department has said, the process. That's how it's supposed to work. But it's not working that way? No, it's not. They are sending, they've sent a few letters and a few emails to borrowers informing them of this right, but they also send these folks monthly bills in which there is no disclosure of any kind. Same that, same department. Same department. Well, but you're right, and this is an important point. So Corinthian Colleges filed for bankruptcy in 2015 after being uh, accused of fraud. Um, if the U.S. were to eliminate debt of all of those who are potentially eligible for you know debt relief from just this Corinthian College, right? Right. It could cost the federal government nearly $4 billion. So this sort of speaks to your point, Shaheen, about the sort of push-pull element of the same agency overseeing both the forgiveness as well as the debt collection and managing the uh, the collection. Exactly. And and here's the, the thing about it is, you know, look, the education department is run by a lot of political appointees. If they were to forgive this debt, there would be a ton of outcry about the cost to taxpayers. And the question inevitably would be, well, how did the department allow this lending to go on in the first place? Where were they when all these loans were being made? There were all these warning signs that the, this chain of schools was engaged in uh, suspect behavior and suspect practices. They had previously been sued by state attorneys general over you know, their allegedly deceptive advertising to students. And so they make all these loans. They book you know, uh, expected revenues off these loans, and then they come back and cancel them later at this huge cost to taxpayers. And folks will inevitably say, where were you when these loans were being made? Thanks very much for enlightening us. Shaheen Nasirapur, he is a U.S. court cases and crime reporter for Bloomberg News. Much appreciated. It is my honor now to bring in Dan Fuss, Vice Chairman of Loomis Sales. Uh, Dan, I, I'm grateful for you uh, joining us today, uh, and I have an important question to ask you. Uh, all we've, right. <laughs> we've been hearing from a lot of big bond fund managers, uh, whether it's Jeff Gunlock, whether it's Mark Kiesel over at PIMCO. Uh, now is the time to be building cash and de-risking. Do you agree? No. Not completely. I understand why, uh, you know, from reading uh, your column and others, Lisa, uh, I understand why they're doing it. I share the general view that uh, the odds are that uh, in U.S. dollar, uh, interest rates are starting their cyclical rise. I, I agree with that. How far, how long, there you get a wide spectrum of, of guessing, because that's all you can do about the future. But um, there's a sort of a fatal flaw 
if if you go to the uh, let's build a lot of cash, and then in some cases people uh, might say I've heard it uh, that just in case they'll they'll barbell it and uh, they'll they'll you know buy some long whatever. Uh, that that gets away from the theme that you're supposed to make money. Uh, as cash returns rise, and they've risen somewhat, to be fair, um, it gets easier to do the short end of that because uh, you're rolling over every three months or right. whatever you're doing, and your yield is going up. Well, that's the general idea. But you have to take into account the uh, shape of the yield curve and the dispersion, the yield spreads around the yield curve, and more importantly than either one of those is the fact that the world is now filling up with discount bonds as opposed to premium bonds. And that's a world of difference when you put those things together. Um, if if you're not concerned about day-to-day or week-to-week or even month-to-month, you say, well, what I'm going to do then is I'm going to go ride the yield curve, just like the, the Muni people do. Uh, and that is a very, very good idea. Well, hold on a sec. So so since November 8th, uh, a lot of people we've talked to have said that they've pretty significantly changed their theses uh, or even started to change how they invest. Have you? Not since November 8th. Uh, actually, uh, we sort of unfortunately beat the rush uh, and build up uh, some cash. Uh, I'm talking now in reference to the mutual funds right. uh, uh, because we we're anticipating withdrawals as this indexation thing and ETF goes on. Uh, so we, we built it for that. And But the rest of the portfolio is uh, the basic structure of it is shorter than it used to be, X the cash. Shorter in duration, in other words, looking for a shorter maturity of the overall. Yeah, yeah shorter in average maturity. Now, I'm going to confuse uh, all the CFA students with this. You have to be careful on using duration when you're in uh, a period of time where interest rates uh, are, are moving rather strongly, you know, directionally. That may not be a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a, a multi-year move. But if your rates are trending up and you're pretty sure the central bank has the same idea or trending down, uh, then you ha- you have to say, whoops, wait a minute, uh, duration, that's fine for the liability matching, but let's use average maturity and let's look at our dispersion around the mean. Uh, and uh, essentially, to put into uh, math forms, uh, what we're doing is we're fattening the middle, uh, just like the waistlines around Christmas time here with all the goodies. <laughs> so in other words, uh, you, you like the sort of five to ten year treasury? No. Uh, well, yeah, you can do it with treasuries. You have, now, tre- treasuries, you don't have any excess spread. So you like it for like five to ten year corporates? Yes. And uh, if it's a taxable account uh, with a high incremental tax, uh, you know, once you add the state onto it, uh, you, you do the same thing in munis. And uh, it's easier to see over there. But uh, you do the same thing in corporates. And, you you know, your fear 
when rates go up, as you say, oh, my God, we're at the end of all the credit cycles now, you know, uh, get the parachutes, out we go. No, no, no. <laughs> you don't do that. You do have to be much more careful on the credit side. Uh, yeah, that's a given. You have to be because people who are refinancing are going to have more trouble as rates go up if they're not a fairly strong uh, you know, business. And, uh, but if they've handled refinance already and the basic business is a good business, not dependent on borrowing a ton of money at low rates, that's an important qualifier, uh, then your best place to be is with the most spread and call protection. And uh, this is where high yield comes into play. Normally, high yield, when rates have gone down quite a bit, is a loser's game because if it works, you get called, and if it doesn't, you get stuck. Uh, And uh, now you're in a different setting because uh, early call gets more and more expensive. If you're buying this stuff, say, in the 80s or low 90s, and the issuer decides to call it at 104, well, that's all right. You're not shedding any tears. You wish you hadn't done that because you have to you know, work a little late the next night. But uh, that's, it's a different market when the direction is up. Now, the flaw in this whole thing is you can say, I'll say to myself in the mirror in the morning, Right after I've cut myself shaving, I'll say, now, listen, listen up. That's a good warning. We're talking U.S. dollar base. Everything I've said up to now is U.S. dollar base. Let's not forget the rest of the world because that's going to impact what the Fed does. So don't buy any, you know, don't draw any straight lines here. Well, we're going to all be uh, watching our fattening middles. But perhaps <laughs> that is the uh, the way to go for a bond fund. Uh him? I, I'm just taking notes. That's the I, and, and last point to you, Dan, can you answer this in 10 seconds? Lisa Bromitz wants to know, do you still like energy high-yield uh, debt? Some of it. All right. Well, there's an answer for you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Dan Fuss is vice chairman of Loomis Sales. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.